couple of weeks ago, the Conservative Heritage Foundation published its 2023 Index of U.S. Military Strength. The study concluded that the current U.S. military is at significant risk of not being able to meet the demands of a single major regional conflict. We discussed the index's findings with the editor, Dakota Wood. We wanted another point of view on the current U.S. military posture. We asked longtime observer and critic of the U.S. military procurement process, Winslow Wheeler, to talk with us. He has spent 40-plus years working on national security defense budgets and military reform for both political parties, the Government Accountability Office, and the Center for Defense Information. Winslow Wheeler, how did you get into the criticism business of the U.S. military? Oh, um, started working on the Senate staff in Capitol Hill for a liberal Republican, Jacob Javits from New York in 1971. Uh, worked for him for 10 years, moved on to work for Nancy Kassebaum from Kansas. Um, during that period, um, I met, I was always interested in the Pentagon and, you know, always gravitated to reading those stories in the paper rather than, you know, the foreign policy stuff. And I more and more, you know, became Javits's defense guy, national security guy, rather than just foreign policy. I started out as a research assistant. Um, and uh, was always on sort of that critical side. But early with Kassebaum, I met a bunch of people, the so-called or the military reformers, I, um, a band of about four or five people at their core and they brought to me a whole new level of understanding of defense issues rather than what I had been hearing in the Senate from defense critics or reading in the mainstream press. It was was a real revelation to me to understand some of this stuff at a very different level from what I'd been exposed to before. And um, I've been on that path ever since who I, we'll get to what you do but who who in the mainstream media if that's a word several words does the best job covering the military and i'd be interested once you say who you think it is how how good a job do they do well it's pretty horrible out there right now um uh i was just last week at a uh conference sponsored by politico it was an, it was a operation run intellectually and morally by defense corporations. And for some strange reason, Politico was happy to, you know, put his name on that. Um, um, the New York Times and the, Walsh, and the Washington Post are not that bad, but they're still pretty bad. They cover defense at the level I was doing it in the 1970s, you know, at the super, the first layer of the of the onion skin. Um, uh, it's hard to say who's doing it right out there. Um, there's one journalist for Bloomberg, Tony Capasio. I always read his stuff. Um, he gets into the stuff better than most not as deeply as I would like, um, but better than most. Um, 
A friend and colleague uh, died last year, Pierre Spray, one of the originators of the A-10 and F-16 aircraft. And uh, we decided to set up in his honor a uh, program sponsored by Ben Cohen at Ben & Jerry's. Uh, he's paying for it. Um, to award, make awards for good journalism. And we haven't met yet to make our decisions, but it's, it's a vast wasteland out there. Um, we're going to be hard put to find an awardee that Pierre would be happy we selected. Um, it's not good, and it's, it's so much worse than it used to be. Um, it's not just the defense corporations, you know, buying their position by, you know, placing ads and stuff. Um, the Internet has ruined part of it. I mean, the Internet is a fantastic tool if you use it properly. Um, but the way it's evolved, everybody's rushing to be the first out there with their latest flimsy. Um, some are better than others, but the vast gang of it is <laughs> it's just fluff one of the reasons we wanted you to come talk with us is we had Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation on to talk about their military survey for 2023 and I asked him are you a conservative and is the Heritage Foundation conservative most people of course in this town think that's what they are mm -hmm. Let me ask you the same thing before I ask you about their survey. What, how would you characterize your politics? All over the lot. Um, I voted for Reagan the first time, but not the second time. Um, no way I would ever vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I find him personally repulsive. Um, um, no way I'd vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, I voted for the Green Party ticket in 2016. Why do you think this way? And what's the reason behind it? Because I, I don't, I don't think they're serious people. I think they're ambitious people. And in Donald Trump's case, you know, his prime directive is point that camera at me. Um, Hillary Clinton is a more complex individual, but she's on the hunt for position, status, and you know, whatever. Um, I worked um, in the Senate and GAO for 30 years. And, you know, you, familiarity breeds contempt. But you always, you always used to see people who would rise above themselves in a crisis. In the Vietnam War, there are um, a group of people uh, on you know uh, on the left started criticizing the war um, um, it took a lot of courage to do that back then um, but eventually the nation came around and agreed with them um, in Watergate you know everybody blew it off except for a very few uh, on the Sam Irvin Watergate committee, uh, I was just around the corner and down the hall from those hearings. And a little TV screen, you know, a four-inch screen on the top of my, the book rack in my, on top of my desk. And we'd watch that, you know, have at least have it on all day long. And I, I became a big fan of Lowell Weicker, 
an obscure Republican senator from Connecticut uh, who seemed um, properly uh, outraged by what he was seeing. I was much less impressed by Howard Baker, who I learned in the closed sessions would tear the critical witnesses apart uh, and be, you know, a dutiful Republican. And then in the public sessions, well, what did the president know? When did he know it? Kinds of stuff. Let me ask you about this survey, the military survey. Uh, in the Heritage Foundation, 527-page survey, uh, they basically concluded that the Navy is weak, the Air Force is very weak, the Army is marginal, one of the ways they rated the Army, and the Marine Corps is strong. When you read that, your reaction? Um, well, I read the report. Um, it's long. Um, it could really be condensed. It's uh, very uneven. Um, I thought the uh, guy who wrote the Air Force part was pretty good. Uh, has some serious exceptions to some of the things he said, but he, you know, um, the guy who wrote the Marine Corps part, you know, that you know Dakota Wood, the guy that you interviewed, I just don't know how he came to the assessment that he did. Um, in some cases, they understate the problems, even though they sounded really severe. Um, a typical example on the fringes is they use what's called mission capability to measure the readiness of aircraft for combat. That's the wrong measure. Um, if, you, if you're able to form, perform one of your assigned missions, you're mission capable. In other words, if you're an F-35 and you're capable to transit the pilot from Andrews Air Force Base to uh, somewhere as in Virginia, you're mission capable. The right measure is full mission capability, where you're able to perform all the missions assigned to you. Um, they would have done a lot better to use that data. Uh, it may have embarrassed some of their favorite airplanes, um, but that's the right measure. Um, um, let, let me just jump in and ask you, the, as I tried to <clears throat> figure out what everybody's saying when it comes to the military, I looked up a number, uh, the number of military aircraft that we have, mm -hmm. and, and I've seen several, but the last number I saw, you can bring us up to date, was 13,000 military aircraft with 5,209 5, fighter jets across the military. Does that sound... No, good? that's that's old data. What is uh, it now? <laughs> um, it's about 2,000 fighter and attack aircraft in the Air Force and the reserves. Um, that's really the, my, my data, what I saw. I mean, that's the problem with the Internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you know, is that enough? Don't trust and do verify. Um, Are these enough uh, air aircraft in order to fight a war if that's what we're looking at well to do what to fight an enemy with no air force no navy no army like we've been doing you know or none to speak of as such as we've been doing you know for the last three decades it's you know plenty i should ask you though do you think we have a threat from other lands the russia the china the iran name it we, we've evolved to a situation uh, 
where China and Russia are closer to each other than either of them are to us, not what Nixon and Kissinger set up in the 1970s. Um, because of cheap domestic politics, um, it becomes the thing to do to uh, 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 antagonize uh, China and Russia, Russia over NATO expansion, China over Taiwan, and declare it to be all their fault. Uh, and when they do something stupid and aggressive, like Putin did in Ukraine uh, last February, uh, it's all his fault. Uh, we did a lot to provoke him. Um, more power to Biden for attempting uh, to meet with uh, the Chinese leader and getting things a little bit better under control rather than sending, sorry for the insult, but halfwits like Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan to piss off the Chinese and, you know, build up her Cold War credentials back here. Um, Why do you call her a halfwit? Well, she's not a halfwit. I don't like her policies, but to run over to Taiwan and do what she did, I thought was very stupid. Why? Uh, it's gratuitous um, 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 offenses. Um, um, if Putin were to send a delegation to Alaska to encourage the native Alaskans to uh, declare independence from the United States, we'd be all kinds of angry about that. Um, that's not a good analogy, but it shows the kind of mirror image, you know, that when you, you look at it from different, a different lens, you understand better what they're doing. What do you think of the fact that the United States has some 800 bases around the world? Well, the, the major ones is not that many, but we are all over the place. Um, I don't have as big a problem with that as I have with our international behavior. Initiating uh, wars of choice, um, all of which we've lost. Um, name, name those. Iraq. Um, the closest country to Iraq right now is Iran, not us. Remember in 2010, they kicked us out. Um, they told George Bush, no, we're not going to renew your agreement to stick around here. Uh, we want you to leave. We came back in. Uh, um, Afghanistan, uh, you know, there's little question. Uh, Vietnam, um, you know, a long time ago, but we sure as hell lost that one too. We're picking fights that we shouldn't be picking. Um, and we're inserting ourselves into alien cultures where we don't understand things. And we think, like Putin thinks in, uh, in Ukraine, um, we can uh, browbeat them into submission by bombing their cities. Uh, few people appreciate that in Desert Storm in 1991, uh, one of our uh, prime Air Force targets was their electrical grid. We did it quicker than Putin's doing it in Ukraine. 
and we did it more effectively, but we did it. And there are lots of civilian casualties directly and indirectly as a result. Um, this is not America on the shining hill. This is America shoving itself into situations that are not in our national interest. And the rest of the world is watching this. And it's astonishing that the rest of the world has been, has been polite as it has. You and a couple of other the folks that you work with, Pierce Price, one of them, mm-hmm. uh, deceased. But you wrote back in 2019, uh, and it, it takes a little bit to read it, but you, you say this. This is sad but unsurprising. You're talking about the $1.25 trillion that was spent national security in 2019. Mm-hmm. You say this, this is sad but unsurprising. Despite the parade of scandals and the billions of dollars wasted on poorly performing, schedule-busting, cost-exploding weapon systems, the dismal failure of the Department of Defense's audit, the grossly overpriced spare parts, the ethically challenged senior leaders, and the widely reported collapse in training and readiness, the issue of Pentagon spending and a decaying defense has been steadily shunned by both the candidates and the debate moderators. And you're talking about the debates for the uh, 2020 Right. Democratic primary where they didn't bring it up at all. The, the word uh, defense hardly appeared. It did towards one of the last debates. But, but that's a that's a huge indictment there. Yeah, it is. Can you break it down? I mean, let me just ask you. Billions of dollars wasted on poorly performing, schedule-busting, cost-exploding weapon systems. Sure. Uh, you know, the classic case is the F-35, which the Heritage Foundation study found, quote, found, found quote, fantastic. Um, Can I stop you there? For somebody that does not know what the F-35 is, explain it just to the average person. Oh, God. In a sentence, um, it's a poorly designed, fat-profile, stubby-winged airplane intended to perform various different kinds of missions, air-to-air, air-to-ground, for three services, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Navy, um, and save money by doing that. How, how expensive, how, the real expense per airplane that we, on the F-35, how many of them so far have been produced? About 500 have been paid for. About 300 have been delivered to the U.S. Um, the unit costs... You know, there's a number of ways you can measure it. But if you take the whole program uh, over its lifetime, uh, or excuse me, over its acquisition, the, the research and the buying, not the day-to-day maintenance, um, you get a cost of $412 billion for about 2,500 airplanes. That math comes out to about six. $160 million per airplane. But what we see often printed is it's $80 million. An yeah, they, the Air Force has this phony thing called a flyaway cost where they measure the cost to fabricate the airplane just as it's rolling out the factory door. Um, doesn't include all the support you have to have to have that airplane. The maintenance equipment the simulators for training, the initial, not all of them, but just the initial spare parts, the special basing requirements that airplane has, 
yada, yada, yada. Uh, when you add just all that together, not counting the R&D, it's about $120, $130 million per point. So go back to this, what I just read, uh, another line. The dismal failure of the Department of Defense's DOD audit. There's the new age. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the DOD audit. How often in the history has the Department of Defense been audited? Um, the requirement started in 1990. Um, they have tried five times. They have flunked every time. Uh, the excuses, like in the Heritage Foundation report, is that it's too complex. It's too big an art operation. Well, no. Um, it's subdivided into 27 different audit entities. Um, in this last audit, nine of them passed. One of them not so great, but passed. What kind of sections passed? Uh, the Defense Financial Auditing Service, the pension fund, a huge amount of money. Uh, none of the services have passed. They're not even close. Um, there's an important point to be made here. The other 18, two-thirds of the uh, entities that are supposed to be audited, they didn't flunk. They got what's called a um, opinion of disclaimer. You flunk an audit when you track the money and you find it wasn't spent as intended or as the laws set, um, we're not that good. We can't track the money. That's what disclaimer of opinion means. They couldn't perform the audit. The stuff is too chaotic. This has been going on for 30 years. Um, um, it's literally true that it would be a vast improvement if all 27 of those audit entities could flunk an audit. Um, that means that you could track the money. In, a, in this town, you have the Armed Services Committees on the Hill, and you undoubtedly know that from your time on the Hill. And you have the media, and you have mm. the Defense Department, and you have the White House. Anybody in the mix here in the last several years concerned about auditing successfully the military? Uh, we have an annual drill. Um, um, somebody reveals this. In this case, it was the controller of the Defense Department. Um, there's going to be a long and impossible-to-read report from the Defense Department's Inspector General. Um, there'll be some hearings. Everybody would be horrified. Pound the table. When are you going to fix this? Uh, do their press releases and immediately go back to sleep uh, and wait until next year and we'll, you know, rinse and redo. Um, there's a lot of interest in not solving this problem. Why? Um, a lot of people don't want the kind of audit that we really need. The audits we're doing right now are very superficial. They're called a statement of budgetary resources. It's basically checking over your... It's a balancing your checking account. I wrote that check. It, I, uh, you know, I gave my son $500. He did spend the money. As to what the hell your son did with that money, that's not in the audit. What we do need is something we 
initiated in uh, World War II called the Renegotiation Board. It went around for a long time and it got pretty much stripped clean of all of its powers, but uh, and then it was eliminated entirely. But it audited corporations uh, to see whether the profits they were earning were not just appropriate, but were truly profits rather than hiding overhead, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd love to know um, how Lockheed Martin or Boeing or Raytheon spends their overhead money, uh, in addition to having an audit of, of the programs. Uh, the Defense Financial Accounting Service does go over the assembly line, and they do do reports. Nobody reads them. Um, and they're sort of ankle-biting kinds of reports, uh, but they're out there. Let me ask you about, you, you mentioned the corporations. Again, these numbers could be off some. You may know the, the actual numbers. I'm looking at uh, the top 100 uh, military manufacturers in the world, mm-hmm. and the first five are Americans. Sure. And the first one is Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin... If this figure is correct, in 2021, had defense revenues of $64 billion. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know what Lockheed Martin does? Uh, lots of stuff. What I they mean, make? Uh, not just the F-35 and the F-22, but ships, missiles, intelligence systems. They're all over the place. Um, um, uh, are they known? I mean, what are they known for doing? Are they known for doing good work? No. Um, uh, F twenty two, a airplane that's a huge disappointment in terms of performance. How many of those do we have? One hundred eighty four. We paid. Uh, those were half a billion dollars a piece. If you count, you know, all the expenses. Half a billion. Half a billion. Um, in today's money. How would that stack up to the F thirty five? Is that an airplane? It's a better fighter uh, than the F-35, but it's still huge and kludgy. It's not as stealthy as people would have you believe. There's lots of radars out there that can see them. Um, and it was so expensive, you couldn't buy an, an a adequate force of them. Um, that's one of the problems. These things are so complex that you can't afford to buy an adequate inventory. You can't replace the inventory we have. Therefore, as your inventory shrinks, it also ages. Our aircraft, as the guy who wrote the uh, Heritage Air Force uh, chapter said, average Air Force aircraft are 30 years old. That's astonishing. We used to joke in the 80s that the sun's of B-52 pilots were now flying those airplanes. We're now doing the grandfathers. Grandsons. Uh, the grandsons. Um, How many, did I read right, the 70s, some uh, B-52s are still there around? There are now, yeah. And they have outlasted the B-1 that was supposed to replace it. Um, the B-1 was kicked out of the nuclear mission oh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and they're slowly being retired. There's about 40 left. Let me go back to Lockheed Martin. I'm not picking on them so much as it, sure. you can get all these numbers can get very complicated. Again, if I, I have the current information correct, 
there is a retired Navy admiral, uh, a retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford, retired Air Force general on the board of Lockheed Martin. Does that matter? Yes, it does. Why? It matters greatly. It matters before they retire because if that's what your ambition is, if you're even contemplating going to work for industry or an industry-owned think tank, of which we have many, um, you don't want to piss them off. Uh, you want you want to get that visit from the nice man who says, well, when you're finished here, you know, we'll talk. Um, that's the most important part of the corrosive impact of this behavior. Uh, a way to make it more live is to consider a staffer on the Armed Services Committee advising a senator on the value of whatever he's overseeing, uh, airplanes. But his ambition is to go work on at the Pentagon, get a nice senior slot, maybe if you're really the amongst the best, you know, get a, a Senate advice and consent position. Many of them have. So what's that going to do to your advice? The nice man isn't going to come and visit you. Um, you know, uh, not going to happen. And so you don't do it consciously, I would hope. Dakota Wood said, when I asked him the same question, that if you trusted them in the Pentagon, why would you not trust them in these corporations? Why should we trust them when they're in the Pentagon? Why not? Just because they're a, a, been promoted in a system um, doesn't mean that automatically we trust them. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King was right when he said, don't judge a man by the color of the medals on his chest, judge him by his character and by his ability to command people in war and his ability to manage a broken building. But go back to the, let's take Joe Dunford. He was the most visible of all the former military generals and four stars, and mm-hmm. three stars that are on the the board of Lockheed Martin. What can he do as a board member? Make phone calls. Um, Is it legal? Call up. Of course. Uh, call, um, call up Senator you know, Schumer. Chuck, we really need this you know, wish list stuff. You know, the, the inflation is really eating us, eating us up. Uh, that would really help. Uh, and what's Chuck Schumer going to do? Uh, he's going to go along. Um, once they've passed some of the prohibition periods, it's, you know, a year or two, depending on what the situation is, um, they can call anybody in the Pentagon and say, what the hell are you doing on the F-35? You want to, you want to test it for what? You know, that kind of stuff. What about money from these corporations to the members of Congress? How much of that matters? Um, uh, we get lots of information on how much they're giving. I don't trust that information. I think what members are getting uh, varies from a few hundred thousand per election to tens of thousands for a non-defense committee member. Um, it buys entree. Um, it buys the thinking in the member's head, well, 
you know, you know, this guy is telling me I want to be against this program because it's not working, it's too expensive, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I have a trade-off here. Uh, will this, you know, wonderful, supportive corporation be nice to me next time around? Um, it's those subtle but powerful ways that members of Congress think and act. And um, the corporations fully understand that. On the F-35, mm-hmm. how many different states in the union provide material to the F-35? Uh, it's 35, something like that. Um, Is that done on purpose? Uh, yes. Um, sp- spread it around. Um, sometimes members insist on it. Bobby Bird from West Virginia used to insist that the plants in West Virginia have a bigger piece of the C-130, for example. Um, but it's not just that. Um, we've evolved a system and a way of thinking about defense in this country where it's only the flakes who are, you know, harsh critics. And if you want to be pro-defense, that means you're for more money and you're for letting the Pentagon do pretty much what it wants to do. You might nibble around the ankles a little bit to pretend that you're doing your job. Um, but nothing serious. You know, we've produced, paid for, excuse me, over 500 of these uh, F-35s. They're in what's supposed to be called, what is called low-rate initial production. That's enough copies to figure out how, how to build it and to test it. You need maybe 20, 30 for that. And we're buying, I say we, meaning the United States, buying 2,500 for use in the United States yeah, of for, the F-35. for the Air Force, Marines, and Navy. How about overseas? How many different countries? There's another 800 or so on contract uh, for a list of about, a growing list of eight, nine, ten countries. Um, Is that normal for, yes. all, for all these aircraft? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the F-22 was the exception. Um, they considered it so highly classified they refused to sell it. Um, um, but, yeah, that's perfectly normal. Back to the heritage study. Uh, before I ask you about heritage, how many of these kinds of studies are done? Um, the heritage thing was much more complete and detailed than most. Um, um, usually, there are the, the reports are rifle shots, not shotgun shots. Um, and they like the chapters in the heritage thing that quality is all over the place. Uh, why, why do you think that is? The individual writing them. Um, um, sometimes it's how much do they really know. Sometimes it's not the instructions they get, but it's the, you know, the, you know, if I put it that way, it's going to, uh, better not say it that way. When, when you were in the government accountability office what was your impression of the kind of work they did when they looked at the military and were you a part of that um yes um um i was in the smaller division in gao the program um evaluation and methodology division that specialized in how to do studies um 
um, we had a small defense group of about anywhere from five to ten people. Um, um, how would you? What would you? How would you grade the GAO on on the work they did on the military? Well, the, there's a much larger division uh, which does the vast bulk of defense work. Uh, uh, GAO got rid of the division I worked in. It was too much of a pain in the butt because it was telling other divisions their reports are crap. Um, there are a, a number of excellent GAO reports as they come out. There are a number of awful GAO reports uh, that never should have been released, that escapes. Um, there's a vast body of them that are informative. They're basically what DOD will admit to. Um, the the way I used the way we used to joke, joke about it in the division where I worked was that most GAO evaluators would go into a Pentagon office and say, "We really want you to give us the right, honest answers, and uh, please do that." And um, if the guy or woman has half a brain. They'll throw them some bones. Yeah, that you know, the, the helmet and the F thirty five has still got you know some problems, and, you know, but we're fixing it. Um, and the evaluators will walk out of the interviews and say, "Oh, we really dragged that out of them," and that's the report. Um, we would have huge fights in my division with the rest of GAO about they're going along with our demanding documents from DOD. Uh, the mantra was, well, that makes them angry. Why do you want to make them angry? We don't care if they get angry. We want their data. Um, what kind of a grade would you give the Armed Forces Committees on the Hill and also mixed in with that, the Congressional Research Service that does research for the different members of Congress on anything they want? Um, I'd give the members of the defense committees and their staff a disclaimer of opinion. They're not doing it. Why not? Um, they're too busy. Um, uh, members have to spend hours every day fundraising, not doing their homework. Uh, there's a culture uh, on many of the staff where well, this is an interesting job, but I'm moving on. And I'm on a career, and I'm going to go to the Pentagon. Second-level choices, you know, go work for the corporations. Uh, but move on. But isn't there a vast difference between working at the Pentagon and working for a corporation in terms of income for uh, the individual? Well, yes and no. Uh, that Pentagon job will get you another job later on. Um, so it depends on what your career path is whether you want to, you know, be a heavy or just a lobbyist. Who would you give high marks to, if anybody, over the years that has have been our secretaries of defense? Um, again, mixed bags, but Schlesinger. James Schlesinger. James Schlesinger. Um, I had a reputation for asking questions and not taking baloney. Um did some things where forced the services uh, to do things like buy F-16s. Uh, 
which gave them uh, enough airplanes with the budget they had to have an Air Force. What's the difference between an F-16 and an F-35? Because um, we still buy F-16s and F-15s. Yeah. Well, they, they have mangled over the F-16 design so much that it's now almost as, as expensive as an F-35. Um, um, but it was designed as a fighter and, you know, to shoot down other airplanes. That's the end of it. It was for a very, for, for various reasons, it was an excellent design. With that successful design like that, you can use it for other stuff, for bombing um, especially. And that's what the F-16 has become. It's become a bomber, not a fighter. I want to go back to what I started on the, the uh, Heritage Foundation uh, index of military uh, strength and read to you, because some of what I'm about to read you sounds just like you. Um, they say, what's the consequence of the military being in a weak position? Mm -hmm. And they list years of sustained use, underfunding, poorly defined priorities, wildly shifting security policies, exceedingly poor discipline in program execution, a profound lack of seriousness across the national security establishment, even as threats to the U.S. interests have surged. Do you buy that? I'm more on that side of what they're trying to say than not. The problems are profoundly fundamental, uh, more so than they say. Um, they say more money will fix it. Um, we should... We should build better airplanes. Yes, indeed, we should. But uh, the way this system works, you you know, you castigate them for having you know problematic things, uh, programs, and say here, try again. They do it the same way, and surprise of surprises, the same thing happens. What they studiously avoid is the kinds of structure to a program where we've had some really successful uh, programs. First, you base your requirements on combat lessons rather than what some technologist in Lockheed Martin or an Andy Marshall's so-called think tank tell you. Um, hard, bitter lessons from, com from conflicts. Then you build at least two competitive combat-ready prototypes. You fly them off, spend hundreds of hours in the air flying these airplanes to see if they work. Um, and then you pick the one that actually won, not the one that lost. Um, and then you build them in numbers that make a difference because if you have a successful design, you don't have a gigantic house of complexity. What has the Pentagon done right, in your opinion? Um, and Pentagon's a big word. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah. You named Schlesinger. Are there other defense secretaries that have been good, in your opinion? There aren't any that are leaping to mind. Who has been, and again, may not be a fair question. Who's been uh, excuse me, Robert Gates. Gates. I uh, had problems with some of the things he did, but he had a, ta a talent... Uh, for trying to listen and for um, 
telling the bureaucratic honchos, you're not going to do that. Who's been the worst Secretary of Defense? Oh, good Lord. Um, and do they, and I, this sounds strange, but do they matter? Do sure, they, they matter. Um, it's an important job. Um, my favorite worst is probably William Cohen, a uh, former member of the uh, Senate from Maine, a uh, longtime member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. You should not appoint politicians to run gigantic federal agencies. And then after, after he was there, he's now formed the Cohen Group in Washington that does lobbying. Yeah, he shows up on TV every now and then. But you know, I, but he also does lobbying for defense corporations. I'm sure he does. I, you know, I don't pay any attention to what he does. And why is that? I mean, does anybody Because pay? I don't think he's a serious human being. Um, um, you could listen to him for half an hour and think back, well, what did I learn from that? I learned what his opinion is. I learned what he's in favor of. I didn't learn anything profound about what he is, that thing that he's in favor of. So if all of a sudden you w- wake up one morning and it says uh, China has invaded Taiwan, what would you expect from the United States? Well, first I'd want to know how we got there. Um, did we do what we did with Putin to continually provoke him um, with uh, NATO expansion and other gratuitous insults uh, where he made the gigantic mistake of doing what he did. Um, But what if they just, you know, President Biden's been on the record saying we will defend Taiwan, mm -hmm. but if all of a sudden they just put boats in the water, airplanes in the air, moved into Taiwan and tried to take it over, what should we do? And what are we capable of doing? We should do something to support the Taiwanese, uh, but it's their fight. Uh, They can impose a huge penalty on the Chinese for an attempted invasion, just as the Ukrainians did on Putin. Putin thought it was going to be a cakewalk. Um, uh, That war is not over. And sadly, the Russians are probably learning from their big mistakes. How much of the military equipment in Taiwan comes from the United States uh, manufacturers? Um, A lot of it. Some of it's indigenous. Some of it uh, is some old submarines. God, I think they're French. I'm not sure. Um, But they do some indigenous stuff. The most important thing about if you want to prepare for war... The most important thing is not to buy stuff. The most important thing is to train your people. And if you do have to uh, fight a conflict, the even more important thing is to have your nation behind you rather than engage in some gratuitous act of offensive action where, you know, like in the case of George W. Bush, the nation was initially supportive, but the more we learned about what the hell was going on, the more we said, no thanks. As you know, the Heritage study shows that the Navy, in their opinion, is weak. I ask you, 
what's your feeling about the 11 aircraft carriers that we have? And the, the Gerald R. Ford was four years late and at $13 billion. What's mm -hmm. your opinion of all that? Um, outrageously expensive. It replaced a uh, class of aircraft carriers in its class that carry about the same number of airplanes. Um, the big claim is that the Ford will be able to launch its airplanes faster. Um, they haven't proven that yet, and they've had big problems with the uh, fancy electronic launching system and arresting system, uh, but we'll see um, whether that doubling the cost really got you anything worthwhile. How important, though, is it? We have 11. The world, if the number I have is right, is, right. Yeah. is 26 total. We have 11, and there's probably some that don't, don't do much, uh, and no other country has more than two. Right. Um, my problem is that if the balloon does go up with China, for example, those aircraft carriers are either going to stay in safe waters uh, or they're going to be at the bottom of the ocean. Um, we have had exercise after exercise after exercise where uh, sometimes our own and sometimes uh, foreign submarines constantly are able to perform successful attacks on aircraft carrier battle groups, including the carrier. Uh, the, this has been going on for 40 years. Um, um, the Navy solution was to stop leasing those uh, Swedish um, uh, electric submarines that were doing this to our uh, battle groups and exercises. Uh, that's not a solution. Um, there are other ways to deliver uh, firepower uh, against an enemy that can sink your aircraft carrier. And we better, they're thinking more about that than all this long range fire stuff that brings up a lot of other issues. But um, um, aircraft carriers, both ours and theirs, are not going to be around very long if they venture close to, you know, hostile places. How extensive is our satellite uh, network looking around the world? Um, I'm not a specialist in that. Um, but uh, just for example, um, when the, uh, uh, the, the Russian pipeline to Europe was, was, uh, was detonated, was blown up, um, uh, satellites found an image of a ship uh, uh, that was there at about the right time. Now, the, the image was too fuzzy, they say, to determine whose ship that was. Um, uh, uh, satellites should be able to get a fairly sharp image of that, of that ship um, and tell not just wait what type it is, but whose was it? Um, um, I was told in the 70s that our satellites were so good that it could look over the shoulder of somebody reading a newspaper and read the headline. That turned out not to be true when I had my classifications. Um, um, but they can see lots of stuff. If you were invited to the Oval Office? No. I said if. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> if 
and you're sitting there and the President of the United States says, okay, Winslow, I've watched you for the last 30 years. You just hammer the military. Tell me what you would do now to improve the situation. Change the people. Um, both the ones wearing uniforms and the ones wearing suits. How do you do that, though? Um, by finding people who stood up to the pressure in the past and have a record of saying, I'm not going to stand for that crap. Uh, we're going to do this the right way. Can you name anybody you know? Uh, a guy know? named Rick Gilmore, who used to run the testing office um, in the Obama administration. Um, the best he, he did the best job running that office of anybody I've seen. There have been others who've done a really excellent job. Others have done a... Tr- That's he, one guy. Well, that's one guy, but that kind of model, he had a he had a profile where he worked in uh, P A and E, the program and evaluation and methodology. Excuse me, the program analysis and evaluation part of the Pentagon, which was sort of their in-house think tank assigned to question stuff. Uh, he went from there to CBO. Um, uh, he had a professional life going through the data, uh, not just one side of the data, but both sides, and sorting his way through it. Um, so what, what is your reaction when you turn on the television set, and I'm sure we're guilty of it at C-SPAN just as much as the rest, and you see somebody, name, name your Petraeus, you know, all these generals, uh, keen that come on television and nobody ever tells the audience that they are on the board of XYZ company right. in the defense business. What, what do you, what's your reaction when you see well, that? Well, they should go on C-SPAN where they do get asked those questions. We don't do it as, ba- as uh, well as we should, though. Um, uh, a guy I know, uh, we're not friends, but former ambassador to China and Saudi Arabia named Chaz Freeman had an interview about this kind of thing. And the first thing, he, one of the first things the, the subject was how to get decent information. And uh, his first suggestion was, if you want to be informed, don't watch television. Uh, from cable news, not I'm not talking about C-SPAN, where you'd talk to people and try to go through stuff. Uh, but the infotainment channels, um, uh, it's not news... It's their take on things. And if you didn't get it right the first time, you'll get it 14 more times uh, during the course of the day. Um, That's not informing people. It's telling them things. Uh, So what would you tell somebody that says, "I'd, I'd like to know more about what's going on in the military than I do? Where would I? Where would you suggest they go? Um, it's not easy, um, but you've got to s- synthesize across a lot of different types of information. Um, get a hold of CRS reports on airplanes, ships, whatever. CRS. I'm sorry, Congressional Research Service. Can Are those available to the general public? Yes, they are now. How do you um, get them? How do you find them? Um, go to crs.gov. Um, and uh, 
or just uh, Google F-22 Congressional Research Service. Read the report. It's going to be boring unless you really love that stuff. But pay attention to the footnotes and go read those documents. Um, Can they read what you do? Uh, yeah, just Google my name. You'll find all kinds of stuff. Um, How have you been able to stay interested so, for so long in this business? Oh, it keeps the juices flowing. I love it. Um, you know, I semi-retired in 2016. Um, um, but, you know, uh, when, and, and, you know, my, my output is going way, way down. Um, but when I put something out, somebody might ask me, well, how come you wrote that? And they said, they pissed me off enough. Um, you know, you see some of this drivel coming out, and that's, you know, just part of the normal stuff that no longer gets under my skin because it's just part of the noise out there. But you've written a lot on the F-35 over yeah. the years. For yeah. When did you start writing about it? Um, pretty much when I stopped writing about the F-22. Um uh, Where do you get your information today? Is it available to the public? From those footnotes, uh, from those reports, um, from talking to people that I know. Um, we used to have a network uh, that included uh, any number of people working inside the Pentagon. And some of them were constant you know, contacts. Some of them were sometimes contacts, but some of, sometimes they would commit truth. Um, uh, go look at this. You, don't ask that question. Ask this question. That kind of help. Or you need to ask for this report. You need to ask for that report. Okay, before we wrap it up, a couple of other quick things. How many s- nuclear submarines do we have? Uh, about 50 attack subs and about, oh, God, f- a dozen um, ballistic missile uh, nuclear uh, missile submarines. What's the difference in an attack sub and a nuclear missile? Uh, an attack sub, the, the target is other subs, ships, and uh, uh, targets for cruise missiles. Uh, the targets for the boomers, you know, the nuclear ones, uh, the nuclear missile ones, uh, is Russia, China. Again, and this always scares me when I try to give you a number from what I picked up on the internet, that Russia has 6,257 nuclear warheads and the United States has 5,550. Is that in the... Something like that. Close enough for government work. With that many nuclear warheads, what's it mean? Um, We got plenty. Uh, We don't need to spend another trillion dollars replacing... ICBMs, submarines, uh, the aircraft, the communications, and so on. Uh, in some of the, in some cases of the nuclear stuff, uh, uh, yeah, they're getting a little long in the tooth, but we can get another decade out of those submarines that nobody can find in the, in the ocean. Um, How do our submarines compare with China, Russia, other countries? Um, the, the nuclear missile ones, uh, they're quieter. Uh, these missiles have a longer range. 
and more megatonnage in the warhead. What would you do if a young person came to you today and asked you whether they should go into the military? You should do it. Um, uh, I I didn't sign up uh, uh, when I was going through came out of college. Vietnam was going on, and I had written a thesis about guerrilla warfare, and I wanted to know part of what was going on in Vietnam. Um, but I've always admired the military, and the people at the working level are fantastic people. Uh, I've known, I, I can't count the number of people I've met and have been extraordinarily impressed with. Um, um, it's a fantastic career. Um, uh, are there problems? Of course there are problems. Uh, but if you go work on Capitol Hill or industry or think tanks, you're going to find some of those same problems. You know, when I first stopped, started working on Capitol Hill, uh, uh, sexual harassment was de rigueur. You know, um, there were some awful scandals and what was going on, you know, below the ridgeline uh, was, would raise the hair in the back of your neck. Um, uh, it's very different now. Um, uh, anywhere where you work, you're going to have, you know, have issues. Uh, but if the Jews is worth the squeeze, sometimes you can do important stuff. J.O. is a very tough, bureaucratic, plotting place to work. But the people I worked directly for and the people I had in my staff when somebody came as sort of a quasi-manager, they were fantastic people. And I really enjoyed working with them. Um, so you can find good stuff wherever you work. In your preparation for this chat today, uh, you looked and read the uh, strategy report, uh, status report by the uh, Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Is there anything that you saw that you want to comment on and we have not talked about? Uh, people should read it. Uh, uh, you're going to read a lot of dogma about policy, Cold War behavior, that kind of stuff. Um, but again, pay attention to the footnotes and go read those documents. Um, it's far longer than it should be. Uh, but I've wasted time far worse reading other stuff. Winslow Wheeler spent over 30 years in the United States Congress and government. Retired now, living in Hagerstown, Maryland. You have family? Yes, sure do. Uh, two sons and a wonderful wife. Um, uh, uh, one son is in Florida and Jacksonville. The other is uh, in, in Virginia. And uh, we have a good family. Anything that you're, you've spotted in the military world that you want to write more about specifically in the next year or so? Um. I'm very interested in the failure in our society to have an informed, legitimate opposition to business as usual in the Pentagon. And if I can think my way through how to change people's minds about how to conduct business, it's easy to figure out what to do. The problem is figuring out how to get there. Uh, and if I can figure that out, you know, I'd be 
delighted to try to get that on paper. Mr. Wheeler, we thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.